and welcome to Two Crickets on a Thorn Tree, uh, the country's most off-topic, on-topic podcast. And today, yeah. uh, you are joined, of course, as always, by half of your hosts, Mr. Gabriel Krauser, and me, Mr. Nicholas Lorimer. So how's everyone doing today? How are you doing, Gabriel? I am, I'm hanging in there. I'm feeling a little bit low energy. Uh, I love the weather. I love the rainy weather. But at some point, I suppose I become like a flower or a tree or something. And I'm like looking for that vitamin D injection. To yeah, no, I get you. Sparkle. I get you. I get you. Well, today we thought we'd talk about something a little bit different because, of course, we've been talking about such heavy, weighty, miserable topics as uh, as COVID and, you know, the great depressiveness of, of, of that disease and, of course, uh, troubles in the U.S. And it's all just been a bit drab. So, of course, we're going to talk and, about something lighter. And, and, and before we talk about something lighter, just to brag, I mean, our first podcast of the year, which was done three weeks ago now in the first yeah. sort of week or two of January, um, was about why uh, clinical evidence has already shown that the vaccines that have been developed are less are going to be less effective right. against the South African variant. That has then become the leading story globally. Globally, two and a half, three weeks later. Um, so you heard and, it here and, first, folks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so having now we're going to sit on our laurels and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and gaze into the mists of time for, well, for well I done, think, hopefully some well insights you. just as uh, yeah well done to you Gabriel for uh, getting on that and talking to those researchers and finding out what the story was uh, because you'd think that uh, you know the other journalists in the country would be trampling over you to do that but apparently <laughs> stenographers a yes. bunch of stenographers <laughs> recording the party line yeah yeah Anyway, uh, so well done on that. Now, uh, before we congratulate ourselves too much, uh, we get to talk about that lighter topic. And of course, that is the Second World War. <laughs> well known. Yeah. It's a time of good <laughs> feelings and warmness between all mankind. Vobs. The Vobs. The yeah, Vobs are like vobs. nothing else. Eh? <laughs> low um, energy too. Very low, very mellow period. Yeah, no, very low. Very Go little ahead. going on. Yeah, so... Right. Now, we're going to think about this because it's an interesting counterfactual, as in how history could have turned and how history did turn. So just to sort of set the scene, if you remember uh, your history books, your history lessons, your father, grandfather, uncle telling you about uh, what was going on. Um, in 1941, the Japanese Empire, on reflection, not a great decision, decided to declare war on the Netherlands, Great Britain, and uh, the United States, basically on the same day, which is is pretty exciting when you also consider that at the same time, Japan had been involved in a war for what, I think four years at that point, uh, in China, which they had not managed to win yet. <laughs> so as, as the line from the movie Dodgeball go, goes, bold move, Cotton, let's see if it works out for them. Uh, <laughs> and uh, at first it kind of did work out for them uh, the Japanese threw a surprise attack at Pearl Harbor damaged a bunch of American ships destroyed some ships the, you know it was great embarrassment for the American Navy um, they launched these surprise attacks on Malaysia on uh, uh, Indonesia on especially on Borneo Java 
They got onto Papua New Guinea. They took all these islands across the Pacific. Um, they drove up into Burma and they even got all the way into what was then the British Raj India uh, proper. Um, and so it was looking great for them. And the British and Americans had decided to focus on Europe. And so there really wasn't much to, to beat them. But they were still stuck in this war in China. And as the years went on, you know, the Russians start beating the Germans in, in the Soviet Union. And uh, the Japanese aren't really able to make any gains. The British halt them on the borders of, of India and start pushing them back through Burma. And the Australians beat them uh, in, you know, the bit north of Australia, those islands, the Solomon Islands. So by 1944, the Japanese are not in a good way, right? They're starting to lose ground everywhere. They've got a pretty tenuous hold. The American Navy is really damaged their navy so they're not in a good place um, they're losing aircraft everywhere they're really under stress their shipping is starting to get disrupted by american and british submarines which are really causing havoc and the japanese are like okay we have to do something the americans are now taking over all those islands in the pacific advancing towards us we need to do something to turn this war around uh, the other thing they're really scared about is that the Americans have managed to base bombers in China, which is their ally. This is, of course, nationalist China. So that's a official name, the Republic of China, which has been the main political faction in controlling China since uh, the revolution in 1912 under the leadership of Chiang Kai-shek. So the Japanese are scared of these American bombers that are flying out of China and threatening the Japanese home islands. Um, and they're worried about the Americans coming across the sea. And they're worried about the British pushing them through Burma. So they're like, right, we need to do something. Let's see if we can take out those American bases in China and also maybe knock China out of the war. Uh, and the other thing we need to consider is that our forces. So when the Japanese invaded China, they took over a bit in the north and a bit in the south. And these two weren't joined together. The Chinese held the territory in between. And so the Japanese were worried that the Americans might sink so many of their transport ships that they literally wouldn't be able to send supplies and troops between the two bits of China that they controlled. So they wanted to also link up those two bits. Um, so they launched something in early 1944 called the Ichigo Offensive. And the Ichigo Offensive uh, didn't have a lot of planes, but it was like, you know, most of their troops in, in, in China um, meat grinder stuff, yeah. Yeah, meat grinder stuff. And China's, especially South China, is very difficult terrain to fight up, especially back then when it didn't have all the fancy roads that they have now. Um, it was really tough, brutal stuff. But after some months of fighting, they really managed to hammer the nationalist Chinese, who had a badly equipped army to begin with. But now this is really pushing them to the breaking point. They've been at war since, what, 1937, I think, is when Japan invaded them. Um, the... They haven't been able to get as much support as they'd like because, of course, the British and Americans have been busy with Germany and Europe. And they really get smashed. Now, there's this myth about China during World War II, which is that the nationalists and the communists put aside their differences and united together against the Japanese. And while that was officially what they did, <laughs> in reality, uh, the communists who had almost been wiped out before World War II by the nationalists and were sort of hiding in the mountains of northern china um the the communists decided to mostly just sort of wait and see so they sat back 
And they did a little bit to help the nationalists here and there, and they fought the Japanese here and there, but mostly they stuck to the countryside as partisans. Yeah, mainly they held their own ground. Right, they held their own ground. They were like, let's see how this plays out. <laughs> um, they also, you know, they didn't have many friends because the Soviets actually thought they were so useless that they tended to support the nationalists over the communists, although that was about to change. So as the nationalists are getting hammered by the Japanese, the communists are like, wait a second, all the Japanese troops are gone. I guess now's our time to shine. And so they surge across Ring. northern China, taking over bits. The Japanese basically only control the railway lines. Um, and at this point, the Soviets start going, hmm, maybe these guys actually are worth backing and uh, start to support them more heavily. So... The nationalists are getting hammered by that, and the communists are taking over more and more of northern China, as well as capturing a lot of Japanese equipment, weapons, uh, artillery pieces, ammunition, that kind of stuff. Anyway, this Japanese offensive goes on, but it doesn't quite knock China out of the war. It doesn't knock the nationalists out. They grind on, they waste a whole bunch of resources, they lose lots and lots of men. It's really grim, brutal fighting. Uh, and, of course... While they do take out some of those American bomber bases, it doesn't mean much because the Americans capture the Mariana Islands at about that time and are able to launch their bombers from there. Yeah, so the Americans so, end up attacking Japan from the Pacific, Pacific from yeah. the Pacific Ocean rather than from the land base of Asia. Which yeah, so it doesn't the achieve this. Right, their strategic objective, their objective was sidestepped. Yeah, and of course, as we know. Um, the, the war continues to go against Japan. They slowly lose ground. And then just before the war ends, uh, the Americans drop the atomic bombs and the Soviets join the war against, China, against Japan, invading northern China, known as Manchuria. And as they sweep across uh, northern China, crushing the Japanese forces there, the Soviets hand over all of those bases to the communist Chinese. So the war ends with China having been absolutely ravaged particularly the nationalists particularly in the south and with the communist chinese being given control over most of northern china by the soviets being backed by the soviets and also having received an enormous shot of strength in terms of weapons equipment and territory uh when they beat the the japanese uh, or sorry when the japanese attacked the nationalists and so uh, the Chinese Civil War resumes in full between the Nationalists and the Communists, and by 1949, uh, so four years later, the Communists win the Civil War, bringing Mao Zedong to power over China. What follows, we kind of know the story. Um, this Mao's policies are really awful and evil. They starve a lot of people. They shoot a lot of people. They cause a lot of Ten chaos. They destroy, yeah. Yeah, destroy a lot of China's cultural heritage. Um, after Mao dies, there's a little bit of a kerfuffle and eventually a reformer turns around who says, look, we'll keep the authoritarianism, but we'll reform the economy to make it freer. And after that, China's economy grows massively. They become a superpower. And now they sort of are challenging the US for uh, global hegemony. Not quite yet, but that's the trajectory one. So the interesting counterfactual is this kind of why did yeah, Japan So we've do done this? the history. Yeah. Right. So now the counterfactual is yeah what's what what are we imagining could have happened instead well there's a number of things i think we could have imagined um but let's let's take one one which is that rather than doing this offensive the japanese decide to come to i don't know they fight in burma and 
decide to fortify themselves there or they counterattack the Americans in the Pacific and it probably won't work. The Japanese at that point were pretty destined to lose the war probably. Basically, okay, but basically the counterfactual is suppose Japan more or less surrenders uh, right. its Chinese territories to the Chinese nationalists, meaning right. that the Chinese nationalists gain the balance, the, the balance of forces tilts in their favor, yes. which means in turn that after the war ends, the World War II, the civil war, which would have still gone on in China, is one in which uh, Chiang Kai-shek's uh, forces are stronger than the uh, communists. communists in the north, and where the Soviets have not been drawn back into bed with Mao Zedong. And so even if they do end up supporting them, do so a little bit later. And 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 so basically... You know, one of the questions to ask is, would would that tilt had Japan uh, basically uh, resigned or surrendered or retreated earlier, uh, would the the nationalists have held on to power in China and stamped out or almost stamped out the communists, maybe left or a doubt, much like in North Korea? Um, right. And and then and and part of the reason that I find this counterfactual appealing is because. On a smaller scale, something like this is what happens in Korea, right? After right. World War II concludes, Korea, which had been dominated by Japan for a long time, becomes an open game in the first war, in the first Cold War between the Soviets and uh, America and yeah, her right. allies. Yeah. And 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 the upshot of that is the communists aren't totally defeated, but they sort of have to uh, resign themselves. To a small a small part of the north, uh, the capitalists get uh, uh, the south, and South Korea is born, uh, and it becomes one of the great good news stories of the twentieth and twenty first centuries. Right, uh, and and so the thought is, could Beijing have been like Seoul? Um, yeah. Oh, and I think uh, I mean you also could have you also could have seen a similar version of South Vietnam had survived. But that's right. a that's a story for another day. <laughs> so 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 one of the things I want to um, sort of throw into the mix here is a bit of the background history um, leading up to World War Two, or, or or more precisely, leading up to the the China Japanese War, which starts in thirty seven, I think. Um, yeah. Which which by some accounts, you know, you must just remember, we like to think of World War Two as starting in nineteen thirty nine. The Russians very much think of World War II starting in 42. Um, 41. 41, June 41. sorry. June 41, when the, when, when the Nazis uh, break the pact and in, invade the Soviet Union. And one of the things that they point out is that, you know, the war was pretty um, small, actually. In 39 and 40, uh, it continued to be a little bit like what had been happening before in Europe, where... The Nazis were taking more territory, uh, but it was it was fairly localized. You know, America hadn't joined. Um, the UK was fighting, but her foreign her Commonwealth allies were, were played a much more minimal role, excepting for the Canadians and the Air Force. Um, but largely, it was like you know naval and and air warfare. They even talked about the phony little war. You know that that sort of period. Yeah. When, 
when when um, the, the hot place is Finland, you know, <laughs> not exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the French decide that they're not going to do a big attack into Germany at the beginning of World War Two, just because the Allies really aren't ready for the war. Yeah. So there's one argument to say World War One starts in 1939 uh, when when the Brits declare war on the Nazis. There's another argument to say that it starts in 41. Um, there's another argument to say it only starts after Pearl Harbor when the Americans join in. And that there's another argument to say it starts sooner in 37. In 37. When 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 the Japanese and the Chinese go to war. Uh, so, but just what's the preface to that? So one of uh, I I I was given this wonderful biography of Deng Xiaoping, who is the sort of reformer who takes over eventually after Mao Zedong dies. Um, and this this biography is by Richard Evans. Um, it's called Deng Xiaoping and the Making of Modern China. It's a very interesting text. Uh, Richard Evans uh, was is, a, is an academic and was also a diplomat. So he had sort of on the ground experience in China. And he 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 has this sort of chapter after getting into a little bit of Deng's personal biography uh, called Warlords and Bolsheviks, sort of covering the period from about 1927 to, to 1931. And, and the thing to understand is that the government in Nanking, which is the capital of China at the time, uh, you, uh, just to take one step back further, you know, China had been like a monarchic uh, dynasty under various families uh, for mm. thousands of years. With a little bit of back and forth, but it sort of had this very, you know, a, a, a model that's familiar to anyone who knows anything about European history. You know, you've got a king or an emperor, and and they kind of rule by diktat, um, and that and that sort of uh, uh, had its ups and downs. The Taiping Rebellion, twenty to thirty million people die in a in a sort of Chinese civil war with Christians on the one side, and sort of anti foreign. Sort of, yeah, sort of. Yeah, Look, anyway, I, I don't. I don't think. I don't think your <laughs> pope or or, or 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 Protestant would call them Christians because they believed that their leader was in fact Jesus's younger brother, meaning that Mary had the, were, had the longest. Uh, you know, she really did not have menopause for for about two thousand years, which is amazing. <laughs> so, anyway, but but they called themselves Christians um, right, on right. the one side, and and sort of anti foreigner anti-Western influence, traditionalists, Confucian types. On the other side, 20 to 30 million people die in that sort of in the mid-1800s. And then you've got the Boxer Rebellion, which is a little bit of a reflare-up of that towards the end of the dynasty. And eventually you've got the dynasty replaced by a republic. Uh, Sun Yat-sen Yat is, Yat is, is the sort of first, um, you know, uh, uh, republican leader. That's the idea of China. Yeah. And... And the and problem he, he is, China, a, he, yeah, he creates a sort of platform and a program of for China that has like these seven values and things. And in fact, he's so important to the to China. I think the communists still actually sort of revere him as the first great leader of China. They just say, "Oh no, uh, he was um, uh, he was uh, he was a communist, really." You know, <laughs> a little bit like Nelson Mandela in South Africa. Like there right. are. There are communists who think, well, the great thing that Mandela did was get rid of a bad system. He he replaced it with with sort of something looking a bit like capitalism. So uh, not great, but a really great first step. And and mm. so we revere and we remember him on that basis. Yeah. So he's got a very contested legacy. You've got also people who say the other thing, the other side about both leaders. Anyway, but the uh, the point is that he ended up having very little power, um, partly because of military defections. Um, 
sort of torn loyalties between the monarchists, shall we say, and the Republicans. And what ends up happening is where you've got a vacuum of power, uh, it's filled uh, by, by those who can muster uh, small armies. So you've got warlords that have armies of like two to 50,000 um, all around China, each little province or each, you know, almost every little town, village, hamlet, you know, it becomes very medieval. Uh, yeah, where sort of if you've got bandits, all you've got the proverbial stuff. castle, or you've got like a bunch of dudes who are willing to go hijack together, you you run the show, and so you've got many many factions, uh, many many warlords that are basically aristocrats that have gone fully feudal, and at the same time you've got a nominally republican government, and so uh, what Richard Evans points out, which I think has a telling echo, we when we talk about these old foreign history things, try not to draw analogies to South Africa. He says, <laughs> um, the great advantage that Nanking had was international recognition and nominal sovereign legitimacy, which when combined meant that they had basically the exclusive power, uh, state power to raise debt. Right. <laughs> Doesn't that sound a little bit like our friends? In Pretoria, anyway, so they could <laughs> they could borrow money, which uh, is the precondition for many kinds of patronage networks, and so the warlords often vied for influence to have the capital sort of rule in their favour uh, in terms of some kinds of regulation, but also to uh, to dole out some patronage. Uh, you know, we're I'm the really good warlord. I'm the really good premier, so I should get some money nah. to build a road or a school or a or a hospital or improve a military barracks or or whatever because I'm the guy who will really protect the peace. And uh, so so that's the one kind of influence. And then the other kind of influence is the Bolsheviks. And uh, Stalin, Trotsky, Lenin. I mean, he's the the the. By the way, there's a university called San Yatsen University in Moscow, and. Uh, uh, Deng Xiaoping goes there. Uh, Mao Zedong uh, spends a minute there. Um, Chiang uh, Kai-shek uh, he visits there. So, so you you know they they the, Moscow basically has its own patronage network. It has its right. uh, its lucre, its influence, its prestige that it can offer. You know its degrees, um, and it uses that to peddle influence. It also uses hard military tactics. It establishes you know classic Lenin-style cell units that uh, sort of metastasize across the countryside. And the Bolsheviks are competing with the warlords uh, in a very similar way. You know, they have small pockets um, and they're trying to to grow their, you know, have, have one little 2,000-man army and another little 2,000-man army join together and recruit more so that it become a 10,000-man army. And uh, both they and the warlords kind of have this ultimate idea of taking over. But it is complicated because people's ideas and their alliances and loyalties change over time. Chiang Kai-shek, right. for example, the nationalist leader that Nicholas mentioned, he starts out, his, his first claim to fame is discovering a right-wing plot a uh, sort of pseudo uh, monarchist plot to um well it's a republican plot but they they a, a plot by guys who really don't like the idea of taking the land and just redistributing it um right. in southern china a, a plot to assassinate uh communists and ultra leftists that are in government uh or in positions of influence in that region and chiang kai-shek is part of 
basically an investigative team of three that uh, once the allegations are made, go in and look into it and they find real evidence for it. And so they disgrace the right wingers. And Chiang Kai-shek becomes a sort of hero of the left because, look, he's uh, he's uncovered yeah, these at, uh, this terrible at one conspiracy. Point, I think he's, he's even known as the Red General uh, because he's thought to be the sort of force for communist power in China. At the same time, the communists make it very confusing because there are uh, uh, orders issued from Moscow and um, and debates happening amongst Chinese uh, communist leaders about whether we should go for full revolution today uh, through the might of the gun. They try a bit of that and uh, they lose. Then they say, no, 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 the thing to do is kind of uh, appease, kind of make friends with the with the leftists that aren't full communists, and uh, and get them to win out against the warlords. And then once they've done that, then we'll take over with full communism, mm. so three stage revolution. And uh, then there are those that say, no, you guys are just opportunists. So so, but the point is that you can't really always tell who's a communist because one of the rules of being a communist right. is you might have to say you're not a communist. And the communists often. Uh, fly under the banner of the like i can't pronounce it properly but the kyong chong tung uh, uh liberation movement you know they they they, mm-hmm. they they don't even wave the, the the red banner a lot of the time and just and, to say and, yeah, and to make it more confusing the soviets are sometimes supporting the ones who are not calling themselves the communists <laughs> exactly because stalin has a very stalin's in a complicated place he's sort of gaining power he's fighting with trotsky they have different ideas about uh, the pace of revolution. And one thing to remember is that Stalin, uh, one of the basic grievances between Stalin and Trotsky is that Stalin was, in a sense, more conservative. He was more right. patient. He often argued for taking things a little bit slower, for getting in bed with uh, bourgeois capitalist elites, if that sh- suits us in the short term. That's why Stalin was able to sort of sign a deal with Hitler uh, an ultimate capital, you know, sort of bourgeois socialist rather than a full-blooded communist, um, uh, and and uh, and Trotsky, I think, would have would have struggled more to 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 oversee that kind of thing. So, but let me just give one last side of the story, uh, which is Feng. I can't remember his first name. Well, his, you know, his his given name, uh, Yang Chiao, I think. But uh, Feng was one of the biggest warlords. And he was an interesting guy because he gets the communists to back him uh, with guns and some training uh, to sort of expand his sphere of influence. Uh, at the same time, he seems like a very honorable guy. He's very popular. He he is an aristocrat. He's a strong Christian, but he likes to spend time with his soldiers. He sort of very much preaches a kind of um, equality of spirit at the same time, you know, you, hard work and and uh, you know, sort of anti-handout kind of attitude, anti-pillaging kind of attitude. He really thinks that the way to go forward is uh, is not by the gun. Ultimately, it's by it's by building things. And he he's very critical of the communists, and yet he wants he wants their assistance because he thinks it's the best way to go forward, and uh, he gets it. And then he turns against the communists no first first he takes the communist patronage uh fights some battles loses uh resigns his generalship uh, as an honorable chap uh and then goes straight to moscow where they don't really want him because they know ah, oh, this guy's not really <laughs> one of us he goes to yeah. the sun yetsun university when deng was a student there 
and makes speeches about how important it glorious revolution is he sort of says all of the right things makes all of the right noises and they're like oh we don't trust this guy what's he saying in the background we need to get rid of him as fast as we can he says well get rid of me give me money give me guns uh let me go back and do my thing and they do exactly that with long teeth they give it all to him and guess what after a couple of years he turns against the communists and and becomes one of their their fiercest enemies in the north um so that kind of I think gives a little that vignette gives a sense of the of the broader problems, which are further compounded by the Japanese colonial project, um, mm. where you have both communists and nationalists worried about fighting two enemies at once and wondering how they can uh, take advantage of their enemies being divided against each other uh, in order to you know gain more for their own side. Uh, and at the same time, you know, really being enemies of both, really not wanting uh, Japanese fascist imperialism or Chinese Republican nationalism to grow from the communist point of view. And so sometimes sometimes getting, uh, you know, fighting on two fronts and, and losing very badly for that reason. And that is uh, ultimately the fate that the communists suffer leading up into 1937 is is right. is retreat after retreat after retreat and their greatest uh you know when when yeah, the, they, when the historians under Mao Zedong after World War II and after he's come to power try to look back on this period and find something good in it the one thing that they brag about is the long march which is yeah, just that, effectively that almost wipes out by the nationalists it's a 6000 kilometer retreat <laughs> yes. Um, and, and so so they almost get wiped out by the nationalists, but they do this really aggressive uh, retreat. <laughs> that's a strange thing to say, but across the whole country. I mean, China's yeah. huge. They walked the, across the whole country. <laughs> almost get yeah, they almost get destroyed. It's horrible. They almost all die. Uh, but this actually becomes a sort of founding myth because then they go to I think it's called Shanxi province in the north. Um you can tell, listeners, that we really don't speak Chinese, considering how bad all our pronunciations yeah, are. It's so bad. <laughs> um, and and they, they hold up in this province, and that's where they manage to sort of rebuild their strength. And it also happens to be in the north, which means that when, uh, of course, all the events I described in the beginning happen, they're in a prime position to take advantage of it. Anyway. So, so, so the, over, the point that I was trying to just just to underline it and make it clear, the point that I'm trying to bring out, because a lot of people are, are going to hear these names and they're going to forget them. And maybe it's a little bit interesting, but maybe it's like uh, all a little bit too far to to really get deeply into. The point that I'm trying to underline here is that the balance of forces were very on edge. You know, this is a yeah. seesaw that is very very you know the there balance no is right in the middle so you can tilt it here. one way you can tilt it the other way nothing was inevitable exactly yeah, it was yeah. very very tense uh so i think there's two things we should sort of look at from here one um the first question uh, i guess i'll ask this as a question to you uh is going to be what do we do we think what do you think china would look like if the nationalists won the civil war and this and the second thing is i think we want to talk about is why japan decided to not take the course of, you know, giving up the war or staying, you know, uh, or being more conservative in its defense uh, of itself or whatever. Um, so why didn't this happen? So let's start with the first one. Do you think, and I have my own thoughts, that China would have been, uh, how do you think it would have turned out if the nationalists had won this war? Yeah, so, so 
I think that China had uh, an identity crisis, and mm. I, I I understand how 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 that word triggers a lot of people. Identity, you hear it and you and you oh it's like, oh where are we going with this? But really, it is the case that societies need symbols. Uh, they need values. They need a tent pole that sort of yeah, holds a, the whole circus tent of themselves. up. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a precondition of relation that you have something like a common language, but not just uh, a, a you know an ability, not just words with which you can describe tables and chairs in common, but also words in which you can find trust and common purpose. And if you look at the history of Europe. Uh, in the 19th and 20th centuries, you find this identity crisis playing itself out over and again. You sort of go from a feudal system uh, where you've got uh, inherited divine right rule, where and people are very localized. People are very localized. They don't. They, you don't. Mm. You don't have vast, vast countries and empires. And if you do, the the sort of empire sort of um, dictates it's terms a, of foreign very, trade. But yeah, it's it doesn't, a very distant thing, the king or the emperor or whatever. Yeah, it's it's not mm. setting up education syllabuses. It's not sort of saying what your healthcare right. policy should be. There's uh, redistribution of wealth, taxation, all of those kinds of things are much and, more. And every village more. speaks a slightly different dialect to the previous one um, as you go through and, like the European countryside. Exactly. And this is very much China. China's in the same position. Yeah. China is the size of Europe. Uh, maybe even slightly <laughs> bigger than the whole of Europe, and and right. uh, yeah, I mean we've talked about the Chinese language, but of course there's really Mandarin and Cantonese, and within that so many dialects that uh, yeah. people I know who've uh, studied Chinese not, struggle not to, to mention, understand. Yeah, right. Not to mention there's Manchus in the north. There's uh, like I think they're called Miao in the sort of jungles and uh, and mountains of the south. There's Tibetans. There's you know there's Uyghurs. just new. Yeah, Uyghurs, exactly. There's just so many different peoples there. It's actually a huge, it's really diverse. Yeah. And complicated. And, yeah. And that can be an easy thing to miss out on from the outside. So, so part of the reason that I started with the Taiping Rebellion is that, you know, the very idea of, of a huge civil war in which 20 to 30 million people die, in part being about Christianity, uh, firstly strikes one as very strange. Uh, if one thinks of China as being sort of a, a monolithic homogenous place where they're all Confucian or maybe Confucian Buddhist. Right. Um, right. And secondly, I think it speaks to um, the kind of vacuum of, of, of identity that was created by urbanization, by exactly the urbanization um, that occurred uh, in, the, in the sort of late dynastic period. It had always been relatively well urbanized, but, you know, uh, tech just got better, trade got more expansive, the opium wars sort of create these ideas about like foreigners not just being um, ghosts that you can disassociate yourself with, but also people that you can do business with, people that you can attack, people you can right. be attacked by. And so there's this need to define yourself in terms of foreign local relations as well on a kind of national scale. So the question is, could China have pulled off um, a national Chinese identity that was yeah. somehow healthful, somehow sustainable? Um, and the model for that would be something like India, which um, yeah. after 
uh, it's decolonized, is partitioned, and then it has this uh, sort of awful civil war and exodus and, and millions and millions of people die. And Pakistan and Bangladesh kind of, you know, they they were East and West Pakistan, then eventually they become two countries. It's a slow process, but eventually you get to the point where India is a is an interesting democracy. It's a growing democracy. It's become increasingly free. At the same it's a very time, federal a, democracy. It's very decentralized in that sense. But at the mm. same time, there is a worry. The worry remains with India that it might uh, lurch into full-blooded uh, Hindu uh, nationalism. Hindu nationalism. And there's a worry looking back in time that if China had not become communist, it would have become something like that. Uh, Confucius nationalist or Han race nationalist. Uh, well, definitely Chinese policy has been quite racist. So in right, that, in a, that there's case, an argument to be made that they just go in that direction. Right. I, I think there's actually an argument to be made that, that you know, uh, when they abandoned communism, um, in the sort of economic sense, uh, the or not entirely because I mean they still have state right? but that's that's besides the point. Um, that they needed something to kind of pull the country together, especially when they had this rising middle class that was you know growing and the people coming out of poverty. And so we have seen in recent years, uh, particularly under Xi Jinping, the sort of rise of a kind of Han Chinese ethnic nationalism. Um, that's a lot of what's kind of driving the elimination of the, the Uyghurs in, in, in the West or the Tibetans. Um, or a lot of Chinese minorities, although they're all in sort of official propaganda given equal status, have kind of been eliminated. Uh, so we've seen like the Manchu basically almost don't exist anymore. There was recently trouble in uh, the bit of Mongolia that belongs to China called Inner Mongolia, where I think the Chinese took Mongolian off the school syllabus or something. Um, and there were protests or riots in response to that. So maybe China of today is actually a little bit closer to the the, uh, the China that we might have seen uh, under uh, Chiang Kai-shek. And I think, and so I think that's a good idea. I think that's about the right idea because Chiang Kai-shek did not seem to be, uh, you know, I think uh, uh, Richard Evans described him as, as uh, it turns out, uh, uh, you know, d despite the propaganda that once he actually had some power to wield, he was neither a Democrat nor a Republican. Uh, no. with, with a and we know that because R. he went on to rule a country called Taiwan <laughs> after he lost the Civil War um, when he retreated to Taiwan and uh, he died in office uh, in like 1974 or something. So, yeah, exactly. So, right. so, but, so, but I think I think your description is exactly right. I think if the communists hadn't won, then China would have, then China of the 1980s, uh, once Deng Xiaoping has taken over and has liberalized markets, but uh, maintained a one-party state kind of totalitarian regime, that combination would have been what you see from the late 1940s, early 1950s. And then uh, by the 1980s, China might have uh, further um, taken the next step towards democracy. And and one, I struggle to believe that that could have happened um, without some splitting of China, without some mm. states becoming independent. So uh, in, in that case, it's hard to imagine Hong Kong still being under China's thumb. It would be its own sort of city state, like Monaco or whatever. Uh, Macau probably would have had independence. Taiwan wouldn't be worried about being invaded. Um, 
North Taiwan would still be part of China, presumably. Or yes, yeah, so sorry, exactly right. Or, Although it, yeah, it might maybe, have it might have split. Um, yeah, so in the I, West, think, I think I think in the is, West you would have seen some splits, and then and and so then that sounds very attractive. If you think that those splits happen uh, in a peaceful way, uh, if China not. did split up a little bit in a peaceful way, like the Soviet Union ended up doing, you know, when the Soviet Union collapses, you've you, like half a, a dozen countries are suddenly you know recreated. Mm. Um, and with the and exception of the Caucasus, it's not that bad. Yeah, um, but the flip side is that uh, uh, nationalists who had an imperial bent might have said, uh, mm. you know, look, yeah, democracy is a problem. As we get closer and closer to that kind of freedom, you get more and more people whose opinions are, well, we want to do things our own way. And, uh, and so firstly, we need to kill them. And secondly, at home, we need to uh, clamp down freedom of speech and of thought. And then you might have had 20 to 30 million people die anyway. You know, so instead of Mao kind of starving them out and grinding the intellectual class. They might have killed each other in a war. Yes. So I I think that there's broadly three ways that China could have gone if the Nationalists had won the, the war. The one, and I guess the most optimistic one, is that they sort of are a little bit like South Korea. Um, also, North Korea probably doesn't exist in this alternative timeline, because but that's not important. Um, they they live under an authoritarian ruler, Chiang Kai-shek, until he dies, and then the country goes through a period of turmoil, and it emerges to become a sort of democracy, uh, or at least a mostly democratic society with a sort of broadly free market economy. And then China would be very powerful still, but it would be a very different kind of power. It wouldn't be the sort of authoritarian menace yeah, it'd be, it'd be richer than it is today let's remember that china's right per yeah. person not that rich today um, right in fact ta- taiwan is a good example of how when you know uh, you have freedom you can be even richer because taiwan is much richer per person than china is and anyway uh, then there's the race nationalist future where like han chinese dominance just comes over and they sort of remain a horrible authoritarian regime and in fact they look a lot like they do today um, yeah. with a sort of vaguely freeish market, but uh, a very authoritarian, centralist, violent regime. Uh, and then there's the, they completely split into a hundred little pieces as like each part of China basically becomes its own thing. And maybe you have a kind of rump state in the middle that stays, but, you know, Tibet and the Uyghurs and stuff go off. And then you have lots of nationalists fighting it out in this sort of shattered country. And it's like, it's kind of a little bit, people will think of it, in that alternative future, people probably think of China in the same way that a lot of people think of, you know, Central Africa today. Yeah, or or, or the Middle East. Or the Middle East, right. Okay, so let's talk about maybe why this didn't happen. Um, and I think this is, a, this is interesting, and I'm going to say your, your favorite phrase here, um, is that Japan had a completely broken esteem economy. <laughs> oh, I love it. Say it again. <laughs> so uh, Japan has this brief flirtation in the, I think it's the 20s, um, with democracy. So J- Japan uh, reforms out of uh, the sort of military dictatorship rule of the shogun uh, in the 1860s and 70s. It then becomes a kind of, uh, it's actually, they base themselves very much off of early Germany, off of Prussia. So they co- become this authoritarian regime ruled by the aristocracy, uh, but there is technically a parliament. And in the 20s, this parliament manages to get some control 
and Japan becomes sort of democratic. I mean, it doesn't really have freedom of speech, but it's like, you know, it's, 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 it's more free than it's ever been. Uh, but then the stock market crash happens in 1929 and the whole world economy goes, you know, sort of belly up for a little bit. And people in Japan also feel this pain. And there's one part of society that's really seems to be working well. It's won wars against China. It's full of all these esteemed aristocrats. Yeah, it beat, it beat Russia. It beat right, it beat grand. Russia in, 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 and it won in the First World War. And it's, of course, the army and the navy. And so basically the army and the navy collude together to take over government. And uh, when and, and the esteem economy thing comes into it when, for example, um, a Japanese prime minister is assassinated. I think it was a prime minister. And <laughs> the there's a there's a court case, or it's a, it may not be the prime minister, but it's a senior politician. Uh, he's a he's a sort of more democratic character. Uh, and the assassins are taken to court, of course, because they murdered him in, in broad daylight. And I think it's something like 5,000 people sign a petition in their own blood. Literally demanding, in their bloods. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Demanding the ink, judge release it. Ink was a sign of uh, capitalist decadence. If, you, if, you, right. if you're not signing things in <laughs> blood, are you really serious? <laughs> and so Japan develops this kind of esteemed climate where aggressive militarism extreme nationalism extreme race nationalism is just the absolute pinnacle of the esteem pyramid that's how you get praise is by being a completely selfless devoted soldier of the of the japanese emperor and the, and the japanese empire and so anyone who who takes on this this esteem thing is is assassinated and that yeah if you, know, you so if no you one... reject it you don't just get dissed or ostracized you get properly yeah. killed you'd and if you do take killed. it on you get promoted and you get dust <laughs> yeah they spit on your on your grave right so um japan then slides into being a fascist dictatorship because people by and large um praise it they they think it's great and it's only after the the humiliation of the second world war when the army has basically led the country to complete destruction that japan's uh sort of pacifistic forces are able to to reassert themselves and the army is so delegitimized that japan for the first i think 15 years or something literally doesn't have an army uh, america is responsible for its defense yeah um which is it, it's interesting it's 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 a great example of the history of japan and this is something where i don't think we have proper time to get into today but after the second world war and before the second world war is a great example of how an esteem economy can go wrong and then how mm. it can be fixed Mm. Yeah, and to just to underline how it goes wrong, I think Nick's point is that um, had the Japanese made a tactical retreat in mainland right. China, had they had, realized, had they and, agreed that they couldn't end the war much earlier, yes, and sued for peace, they might have found peace on terms that would have preserved more of what they at the time considered to be honorable. Right. Uh, but they didn't do it so because they believed be in their own superiority and they believed right. in the inferiority of other races. They thought that the Chinese back would be broken. They thought that the Americans were ultimately wimps who would never dare to lose men in Iwo Jima or any of the marine islands. They thought that the the, the Brits were a bit like, you know, a, a pretty good race, but 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 ultimately... Decadent and sort of, yeah, they're past their prime. Yeah. 
And so and so they made this bad miscalculation, which is not unlike what what goes wrong with the Nazis too. Uh, right. Hubris. But the the idea that your race is superior, <laughs> it just right. turns out not to ever have been born out. <laughs> and this is this is why they declare war on on the Netherlands, Britain, and America at the same time because they think that they're just superior. Well, they know that they're materially inferior to the Americans. That the Americans, if they get going, will crush them. The, the sort of Japanese leadership knows this, but they think that they can intimidate them just because they're braver and the sort of more willful, more disciplined race. Um, and and this toxic esteem climate is also why they don't surrender. Right until the end of the war, like even talking about sort of giving up, there's this, mm. some revisionist historians have gone on about a, a peace faction in, in the Japanese government. Mm. This peace faction could barely say anything because they were all scared of getting killed. Yeah. And after Japan has been nuked, right, the Soviets have invaded. Everything is going wrong. Tokyo has been literally burned to a crisp by American firebombs. The country is in chaos. There are still people in the Japanese high command and the sort of military who are saying, no, no, as long as half of us survive the war, we win. All we need to do is trick the Americans into invading our home islands, kill so many of them that they're forced mm. to sue for terms. And as long as 50% of our population survives, we've won. And this group, when the Japanese emperor Lunatics. and the sort of peace faction decides to surrender, right? There's a group of Japanese soldiers who try to break into the imperial office to kill the emperor before he can give the surrender broadcast. That's how twisted mm. things have gotten in the Japanese uh, mm. high command and, and sort of esteem culture. And then in terms of how to rebuild it, I think there's something telling that I picked up on on uh, a podcast that I listened to on re on Nick's recommendation about the American bombing campaign in Japan, uh, which is that the Americans avoided bombing Kyoto, which was the sort of symbolic capital of Japan. Yeah, it's where the emperor lives, um, and it was the capital of Japan in ages past. It's kind of like the cultural capital exactly so it was the esteem capital it was no longer right. the the richest place it was no longer the the, the, the center of state power but it was mm. the esteem capital and the americans um as 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 much as sort of uh everyone knows that a lot of american soldiers did did entertain their own sort of form of racism against uh, uh japanese slant eyes or whatever um they 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 had the wisdom to to not go after the heart of Japanese esteem to say rather, mm. you know, we want to cripple your power base. We're going to cripple your commercial production base because that's what puts material in the field of battle. But we're going to, we're going to leave you with some honor intact. And in sense, th there's a lesson there learned from the failure of Versailles, I suspect, mm. where, you know, the peace terms that were drawn were in terms of military and commerce, pretty lax, totally lax in the sense that almost none of it was enforced. Um, the, the real disturbing thing, uh, if you if you sort of read um, newspaper columns and, and diary uh, entries and letters from Germans at the time, the, the really irritating thing was that the Germans had to take sole responsibility for World War I, um, right. which just was factually not objectively correct. And and it was it was it was intended as a humiliation, in particular driven by the French, but appeased by um, uh, all of her allies, and and that created a climate. That humiliation uh, created a climate for 
for for a resurgent kind of uh, race nationalism in Germany. And so there's this paradox where on the one hand, the Japanese were totally humiliated. They they lost their colonies in on the Asian mainland. They yeah. were completely shellacked. Um, their cities in, were burned to a crisp. Their, their cities were burned to a crisp. Killed in huge numbers. It was awful. Uh, but at the same time, there was a kind of enduring respect this sort of right. strange idea. We will, we will, we will literally nuke Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but we won't touch Kyoto. And I think that does play out in a subtle way in 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 the piece that is to come. And and the piece that to come is is really remarkable. I mean, uh, mm. Japan's ability to pacify uh, the this, the kind of esteem revolution that occurs, where it goes from being. A, an immediate like and applause if you put up on your proverbial Facebook page, which I don't know what, what the equivalent was, sort of writing in a newspaper <laughs> or, or saying to your friend or your colleague, you know, let's kill the buggers. That goes from being an immediate like to being an immediate dislike, you know. Right. Um, in fact, that, to this day, Japan still doesn't have an official army, despite the, the some in the Japanese politics who, who want to sort of get rid of some of these old things from the occupation of the Americans, they have what's called a self-defense force. Yeah. Um, and in fact, they weren't even allowed to come to the defense of their allies, I think, until, or, or they weren't allowed to declare war on behalf of their allies or something until very recently. Um, yeah. So Japan's constitution, I think, still prevents the country from declaring war. So it's really, it's it's quite deep and it's done very well. I mean, mm. Japanese standards of living have, 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 uh, have radically increased over the last 50 years. Its, it's product has contributed to world supply chains. It's, it's made it easier right. for you and me to listen to the radio and uh, play on our cell phones and all kinds of things like that. So it, 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 uh, that, 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 that kind of did work out. You know, some, some, mm. some vindication for the tragedy was found. Of course, you can never, it was, you can never justify what happened in the past. Um, by the successes that come later, but you mm. can learn lessons that uh, that say, look, even even when millions of people have been murdered, um, that doesn't mean you you get to throw up your hands. Uh, in fact, right. that increases the urgency to make something good out of it. And the difference is, and part part of part of what's important is um, this vacuum of power, just being filled in by by the sort of nearest proximate force. And in, in Japan, I think it would have been different if they had been occupied by the Soviets. Right. I mean, and in China, in China, I think it would have been different if they had not been occupied by the Soviets. I think, I think there's another, another interesting thing to talk about here very briefly. And that's actually how, so we've, you know, I think we can agree that Japan is a great place where, where the, the steam economy got completely reinvented and instead of sort of violence and warfare, they now work really, really, really hard. Um, mm. And that's kind of the pinnacle of the, the esteem market, being polite, mm. working hard, that kind mm. of thing. But the old forces were not completely defeated. Despite being delegitimized by leading the country to such ruin, there's still a sort of nationalistic bent in Japan. Um, there's still people in senior positions in politics who basically deny that Japan committed war crimes um, in, in, in China, which they did. Uh, for example, the infamous rape of Nanking, as it's known. Mm. Um, and there's still sort of nationalist textbooks that you can find in schools and things and nationalist shrines. 
uh, Shinto shrines that kind of deny that they ever did anything wrong. And this is following from the line that when Japan actually surrendered, um, the emperor's surrender speech, I don't think he used the word surrender. And he also said, we're stopping fighting the war because the American atomic bombs will set the uh, atmosphere on fire. And so for the good of the world, Japan will stop fighting. So the Americans don't kill humanity. Stop climate change. Right. (laughs) So, so, so as much as there has been a victory for for goodness, uh, it's, there's no such thing as a complete victory in the esteem of market. (laughs) Exactly. And so this is why I say this thing about Kyoto, because I think, I think it is a deep and very difficult point. Um, my take on evil is that whether it's in your own person or in a body politic, if you aim to completely eradicate it, you're bound to fail. And the I think that's a soft. I think that's a relatively uncontroversial claim. There's just no. There's just no person who doesn't have sin or or, or moral weakness or, or you know whatever term you'd like to use. Um, in their hearts at some stage we all we all do bad things sometimes um and bodies politic also always includes some element of that but the harder claim uh the more controversial claim is i think if you aim for total annihilation then you're actually bound to make things worse mm. and so the modus vivendi as the latins would put it or the kluge the kluge as the germans would put it the sort of imperfect <laughs> workable solution um is to is to master it is to ring fence it is to try and squeeze it smaller and smaller uh to to aim in this kind of conservative way not for a perfect world but a, a, just a slightly better world um that seems to be uh that seems to be right to me and this is a kind of factual but uh so so you can't prove it wrong but 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 i suspect that if the americans had um bombed kyoto made a martyr of the emperor and of the those who occupied the highest positions of the esteem economy who weren't of you know overtly sort of in a causal sense connected you know generals right. who were literally making orders that instead gone after the the symbolic figures then um japanese pacifism would not have endured as well as it did mm. and so i i look on that and and we do see it uh, sort of on every anniversary of the uh, Hiroshima bomb. Uh, there's always a Japanese news always carries the stories about who's going to the shrine and who's not going to the shrine and who's sort of saying what and how subtly are they trying to excuse uh, Japanese fascism or how overtly are they condemning it. And I think that that sort of conversational space where there are still people kind of towing a line that I don't like that I think is is properly evil ultimately if you if you give it enough of a chance but the fact that they still have that there's some people kind of pushing that line uh but that the overwhelming majority of of action is pushing the other way uh that seems to me imperfect and so much better than than any really achievable alternative and and not to bring it back to south africa but you know if one were to imagine a country in which uh, there had been a kind of race nationalist project uh, to oppress people viciously right. on the basis of the color of their skin. And then 25 years later, you found that you could go to a bar in the middle of the rural countryside and find an old flag uh, <laughs> of that old uh, regime 
and one or two uh, sour, bitter, drunk people who sort of say, oh, I wish things could go back to the way they were in the 1980s. I much preferred it. That that is yeah. that that is so much better than it would be if you if you wiped those people out. Um, that it's better to sort of make peace with um, wrongheadedness and and making peace with it is is not a soft thing. It means limiting it. Yeah. It means keeping it in outside making of the corridors of power. When it's no longer important. Exactly. Not going on a sort uh, of crusade to 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 burn yeah. it out. Not trying to use right. violence to 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 persuade every last person. And I've got the same attitude towards Holocaust denials. You know, I really do think freedom of speech is. Uh, gets a strong test there. Um, uh, and oddly enough, this guy uh, who wrote the Deng Xiaoping book, uh, Richard Evans, one of the most, uh, he kind of made his name when he was called to give evidence in a libel case where Irving, I can't remember his first name, this British guy, was accused of being a, described as a Holocaust denier. And mm. he then sued. He said, no, this is libelous. And then Irving came up as an expert witness for the defense saying, well, dude, look, look at what you've said. Like you've been a, a bullshit historian. Like you haven't told the truth. You have totally mm. um, bent uh, facts uh, out of out of any true shape in order to carry a narrative that basically exculpates Hitler. Um, and that process anyway. And so the point is the libel suit was defeated and no one got sued, but also no one went to jail. You know, mm. he was just humiliated. Irving was just humiliated. Um, right. and, and that way of dealing with it just seems to me, um, so much more effective than, than the alternative right. of, of jailing or, or executing Holocaust deniers. Right. Cause and I think, I think horrible yeah, countercultural sort of chic to it, yeah, which is exactly, it becomes martyrdom. People, people, people mm. love a martyr. Um, and and also once you use violence to defeat the other side's argument, you you basically pull the table away of evidence and uh, reason debate. You're saying precisely that this is no longer something we can talk about. So the other side who doesn't have much good to talk about uh, actually finally gets to play on a terrain the, where it can um, stand a chance of winning some arguments, uh, as it mm -hmm. were. Uh, winning some battles so i don't know i do think I, I think it's interesting and i think that uh i think that china was in an even more complicated place than japan because japan had this sort of it had a real esteem pyramid you know and that it, right. and, and and effectively what happened is they kept the shape of the esteem pyramid but they changed the value that puts you at the top <laughs> yeah they just swapped out the top <laughs> And and so people who had been aspiring to be more militant aspired to be more productive. And right. in China, they really didn't have an esteemed pyramid. They had like uh, they had an archipelago. You know, they had a series of, of mm. a mountain range uh, of really competing ideas, religiously competing, racially competing, economically competing, uh, competing about local versus global, you know, centralized versus federalized. Um, they really. Even even the way you know, just to drill down a little bit more into religion, like it's not just Christianity versus um, Confucian Buddhism. It's like there are a million different ways well, of sometimes both of those right, things, and they intersect and overlap and uh, and reject each right. other. It, it's so it's, it's yeah. even even Buddhism versus Confucianism sometimes. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Right. So so I don't know that they could. I don't know that there could have been. 
um, an easy solution for China. And I do suspect that the lessons of the Holy Roman Empire, the Roman Empire, the British Empire, um, and, uh, you know, Gallic, the Napoleon's attempted Gallic Empire, you know, the lessons seems to me to be that you really need um, less diversity than 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 China has to to have a nation state, right? All of those empires try to mm. uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, Russian Empire. They all try to cover many different peoples, many different creeds, many different value systems, where people didn't have a sense of national loyalty to one particular form of government and one particular capital, and so on. And it's hard to create that. Uh, the largest uh, effect of democracy, America. You know, part of the reason America works is because it was kind of woven out of uh, fresh cloth, it, you know, m more or less in one go. Um, and part mm. of it is, as, as 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 some of my friends like to point out, you know, when you go on holiday in Europe, you can drive 100 kilometers and you've gone through three different languages and f seven different <laughs> styles of architecture and agriculture and so on and so forth. You drive through America and there's a McDonald's everywhere. Everyone says, have a nice day. Uh, you know, it's, it is actually much more homogenous than China or um, but even, maybe not even, China today. Even so, it does, yeah. Yeah, it does also the have a, uh, right, it does also have a, a decentralized political structure, which is different from, because that helps, in, if, if like having a unified culture is useful for pulling a country together, having a decentralized political structure is also useful for holding a country exactly. together because local grievances and differences can be worked out at a local level. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I think we are getting a bit towards the end now. Um, anything you want to say to finish off uh, before we do recommendations? Yeah, I just did. I really like the thought that I, I really like this kind of factual because it's because sometimes when you can't find hope in your present reality or, or you or you know where the hope is and it hasn't moved, you haven't gotten any closer in the last <laughs> year or two which might resonate yeah. for some people. You, there still is hope, but it's just not getting any closer. It's nice to bring the hope a little bit closer looking back in history through these kind of factuals and thinking, you know, is there a way that the war could have ended without then having Mao Zedong take over and wipe out 20 or 30 million people? Yeah, maybe there is. And maybe perversely, it's not by having a slightly, not having Mao or having a different communist party. It's by the enemies of both the Communist Party and the Chinese right. Nationalist Republicans um, just being a little bit less of the fascist militant crazy thing that they were. So we can't go back and change right. it, but it is interesting to imagine it. I appreciate that, no, you, exactly. that you brought this up. I think it's it's good to remember that history is always a matter of decisions and that we're making history ourselves as we go along. It's a good thing to bear in mind. Indeed. Okay, uh, my recommends for this week. Well, <laughs> I guess I would uh, recommend uh, there was a YouTube video on, I think it's called uh, The Largest Offensive You've Never Heard Of or something like that, um, which is a, which is about this this particular thing I talked about at the beginning called the Ichigo Offensive. Uh, so I can definitely recommend that. Um also, I'd like to re-recommend my own uh, stuff, which is the This Week in History thing, which I do uh, every week on the dailyfriend.co.za. Um, I wrote about, what was it, Burma and the March to Casanova this week, which are uh, 
the march to Casanova is an important thing in his in european history that i think a lot of people especially outside of germany are not that familiar with and burma is just a country that sort of it's almost like a black hole in most people's kind of conception of the world because it's just you know it's been such a backwards country for for most of the second half of the 20th century that i think a lot of people don't pay it mind i mean you know it's not even called burma anymore it's called myanmar mm, um mm. so that was that was i enjoyed writing that was very interesting um do you have any recommends gabriel um i want to re-recommend nick's recommendation from last week which was uh the youtube video about leo the canadian who single-handedly yes. killed 93 <laughs> german prisoner of war soldiers and then single-handedly liberated the Dutch town the of Dutch Zoll. Town. <laughs> I mean, it's not actually called Zoll, but it sounds so much like Zoll that, anyway, dude, that video was amazing. What's it called again? Uh, the Scar to single-handedly liberated a, a town, I think it's called. <laughs> oh, dude, so good, so good. Um, and yeah, since I've talked about it so much, I mean, it stands to be a little bit obvious, but Richard Evans' uh, biography of Deng Xiaoping, Deng Xiaoping making modern China. I think it uh, it dodges a lot of the trappings of some of the American biographers. Uh, it definitely dodges a lot of some of the trap a lot of the traps that I saw in like PBS and History Channel documentaries on YouTube that uh, take the party line, the Chinese Communist Party line, uh, to heart, and uh, and so sort of put Mao Zedong in a more central role than he sometimes was. And he gets deeper into the sort of battles between the warlords and the communists than uh, anyone else that I've come across and and finds uh, Deng walking a very interesting line. And it's just got one line that I want to quote from Deng to sort of finish this up from my side, uh, which is Deng Xiaoping said, seeking truth from facts is the ho- is the essence of Marxism. <laughs> 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 and and I think that's I think that's fascinating what's, because what's that the kids it, say big if true. <laughs> well, it lets you know that even something like Marxism is just a word that you can use in 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 your own way. And I think part of the reason that Deng was such an effective leader is because he reinvented what Marxism meant. So he's like, whatever Marxism yeah, means to you, here's what it means to me. It means seeking truth from facts. Uh, and uh, and the fact is, you know, he lifted more people out of poverty. Um, through authoritarian means um, than anyone else, and uh, that's that's uh, and precisely by turning his back on uh, pretty much every other idea that Marx ever had, uh, it's right. a fascinating contradiction. <laughs> Indeed, right. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this somewhat uh, off the rails discussion about uh, a bit of history that I think a lot of people, in particularly in the sort of, I guess, Western world, as we might call it, I know Gabriel hates that term, um, <laughs> would, would be very interested in. Um, and I hope everyone keeps the flag of liberty flying. Cheers, everyone. Grr, 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 grr.